cars today. And Darren was here last night and very interesting um, forum for Christian leaders that you did for about 20 folks last night. Very interesting to hear his perspective on things and then to get a variety of perspectives back. Um, but, and I'll, I'll let him say more about who he is and what he does, um, as that's important. But the most important thing is he's a, a, a believer. He's married to uh, Vicki for, it sounded like about 40 years. 44. 44 years. He's got three children, all out of college. Uh, one lives in America, or in St. Louis, where he's from. One lives in uh, Toronto, Canada. And one lives in England. Um, so, um, very interesting. Uh, I asked him about his kids, and he said, well, the first thing you should know is that they're my best friends. So I thought that was a great comment. You know, somebody who's been married for 44 years, and they can consider their older children their best friends. That's, uh, you know, once you get that established, then pretty much anything else the person's going to say. <laughs> that happens to me. Um, so it's really a great honor to have him here. He spent 20 years essentially at Labrie, which he'll talk uh, just a bit about uh, to explain what that is. But it's just, it is really working with um, people who have questions about Christianity. And so you can imagine 20 years of working with people like that, what you're tied into, and then 20 years, last 20 years at Covenant Seminary, which is in St. Louis, which I guess, would you say it's, that's the sort of the flagship seminary for the PCA? Yeah, we're actually owned by the PCA, okay. so. Uh, and John Dale <laughs> is a student there in his third year, and he was the one who recommended Jerem to us. So, Jerem, if you would come and talk to us, we'd be happy to hear from you. Well, it's very good to be with you, and I very much appreciate having been invited, Paul. And uh, thank you. Um, I should tell you a little bit about myself, but uh, before we do, let's pray together and ask the Lord to be with us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this beautiful morning. We offer ourselves to you. And we thank you that you have offered yourself to us so fully in your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, be with us, teach us this morning, we pray. Help us to uh, think your thoughts faithfully, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I should tell you a little bit about myself, I suppose, that as uh, Paul said, that the most important thing is uh, I'm, I'm a believer. Uh, I'm very happily married to Vicky. We have three sons in their 30s who are married and a uh, very multicultural family in terms of my daughters-in-law and... Uh, we have seven little grandchildren uh, who uh, are my very great delight. Uh, they were all with us this summer, so the house was kind of full and noisy, uh, which, was, uh, which was great. They're all small. That was a wonderful time. Uh, what I do, I teach at Covenant Seminary in St. Louis, uh, primarily evangelism uh, and uh, sort of p personal pastoral training uh, for our seniors just before they're going to graduate what it means to be a pastor serving and shepherding people. Uh, my great passion, I, I suppose, is, is evangelism. That's really why I went to teach at Covenant Seminary after working in England for 20 years, basically as a pastor in uh, a growing church there in a setting where there were almost no believers at all, which is true all over Britain. But... Uh, but uh, the Lord blessed that church and it really grew. And at the same time, I was working in the ministry called Labrie Fellowship, which Francis and Edith Schaefer began in Switzerland back 
in the 50s. And I worked with them in Switzerland. That's where I met my wife, who's from California. I'm from England, as you can still tell, just about. Uh, and uh, we met there in Switzerland back in the 60s and got married. And uh, Schaefer sent me to Covenant Seminary in St. Louis. And then I went back to work in the Brie for 20 years and pastor a church there in the south of England. So that's just enough about me. If you could turn to John chapter 4 uh, this morning. Uh, we're going to be reading this passage. But before I do uh, read John 4, uh, let me set it in a context. Jesus uh, uh, said to his disciples uh, after his resurrection from the dead, as the Father sent me, so I am sending you. This is the calling not only of the apostles, it's the calling of the whole church in every generation. God's heart is his mission to the world, and that is the calling of the church in every generation. It's also the calling of every believer. Jesus says to you and to me today, uh, as the Father sent me, so I am sending you. And if we ask uh, where that is, let's see if we can get this working. There we go. I thought this was working. Let's try again. Maybe I need to stand in the middle. Well, then. Um, It goes back here. Okay, there we go. That's, uh, that's, uh, we're going to get there. Yeah. So, just as the Father sent Jesus, so he sends us. And the question is where? Uh, into the world. And when you read John, Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17, uh, Jesus prays for his disciples then and for you and me today that we will be in the world as Jesus was in the world. That's the calling of the Christian. He doesn't call us out of the world into some kind of Christian holy huddle. He calls us into the world where he was. And there he promises that he will pray that we will be kept safe from the evil one. Uh, there he promises that he'll be with us. He doesn't want us copying the world, living like it, but he does want us in it. Uh, that's his desire for us. Let's see if we can... Yeah, okay. So he sends us. And every day, Jesus prays for us. Just as he did in John 17. He's praying for you. And he's praying for me. That we might be in the world just as he was in the world. And I would just challenge you this morning to ask as you pray for yourself... Uh, is this your primary prayer for yourself? That you will be in the world as Jesus was in the world? And is this prayer your prayer for your children? Uh, what do you pray for for them? Do you pray, I'm sure you pray for safety, uh, for health, uh, for success in school, and uh, for all kinds of things like that. But... Jesus desires that, as well as those things, just life and health and strength and food and, and 
serving him well, he desires that we pray for ourselves and our children, that we be in the world as he was in the world. What we're going to do is look at an example from Jesus' life. And uh, there's the picture, and we're going to read this passage from John chapter 4, which will take us a little while because it's a long passage, but it would be good to have the whole passage set before us. So John chapter 4. When Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, Jesus left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. It's the middle of the day. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain or in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? 
So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has someone bought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe. We have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. So this wonderful story, uh, here's a, a very early painting of it, of Jesus uh, sitting there uh, at the well and talking to the woman and the disciples have just come back surprised to see him speaking to her. Now let's, before we look at this passage in some detail, uh, let's think about Jesus' ministry in general. As you read the Gospels, you see that Jesus is primarily ministering to the Jews. Uh, that's what most of the accounts, the records we have in the Gospel are about. Uh, and Jesus says this about himself, that I was sent to the lost sheep of Israel. Uh, he just had these three years uh, of ministry, and that's where he focused his time. But as well as that primary goal of reaching the Jews, there are also several accounts in the Gospel of Jesus talking to Samaritans, ministering to Samaritans, and of Jesus ministering to Gentiles. And those stories, like this one here, those histories reveal to us that Jesus' long-term goal both for himself, for his disciples, who he calls, and for the church today, for you and I, the church throughout all history, that his long-term goal is that his word will go out to the ends of this earth, to every nation on the face of the earth. His goal is to go far beyond the Jewish people, uh, to the Samaritans and to the Gentiles, and to the whole world. Because as the text finishes that I just read to you, he is indeed the savior of the world. Uh, that's what these Samaritans came to believe. And that was, of course, why he came into this world, why he was born, why he ministered, why he died on the cross, and why he rose again and ascended into heaven, that his gospel may go out to the whole world. Now, the text describes a brief meeting between Jesus and this woman. Uh, John has summarized it for us. I'm sure it doesn't include 
every word that was said between Jesus and this woman. But it's just a fascinating encounter. Uh, when you read it at first sight, it looks like it is a chance encounter. It just happens that Jesus meets this woman at the well in the middle of the day. But what appears to be a chance encounter, of course, is not. And I'll say a little bit more about that in a moment. But it leads to a two-day stay in this village. And as a consequence, many of the villagers coming to believe in Jesus. Actually, one of the remarkable things about this text, there are two remarkable things about it, among others. One is that this is the longest conversation recorded between Jesus and any individual in all four of the Gospels. And the second is, this is one of the most fruitful encounters Jesus ever had with anybody in terms of the number of people who come to faith as a consequence of it. Uh, and that, of course, points to the fact that this isn't a chance encounter at all. Uh, this is Jesus' intention on that day. Now, here is the earliest painting we have. This is from the catacombs in Rome. So from the very, very early church of Jesus uh, meeting this woman there. And here's one from a little bit later, from the 1600s. Uh, now, is it a chance encounter? Uh, uh, of course, uh, it isn't. Jesus uh, stops to rest from his journey and the woman, neither Jesus nor the woman, just happened to be at the well at this moment. Uh, the Gospels tell us that Jesus, throughout his life, was committed to doing the Father's will. Uh, what Jesus actually tell, tells us in these passages from John's Gospel was that everything he ever said and everything he ever did was exactly what the Father wanted him to do. So this certainly isn't uh, a chance encounter. Uh, what's happening here is that Jesus is exactly where the Father wants him to be, when the Father wants him to be. He's doing what the Father wants him to do, to meet this woman on this day and have this conversation with her. Jesus says, I never do anything of my own accord. Everything I do is precisely what the Father wants me to do. Everything I say is not my own word. It is what the Father wants me to say. Uh, even as a child, this was true of Jesus. Remember when he was in the temple, uh, when he was 12 years old, and his parents went back, Mary, his mother, and Joseph, his assumed father, went back uh, to find him. Uh, and when they said, what are you doing? You've been here for several days. We missed you on the road back home. Uh, Jesus' response was, didn't you understand? I have to be doing my father's work. This is his whole life, that he was doing what pleased the father. So that's what he's doing on this day. Jesus is a pattern for our lives. Uh, his life is intentional. Uh, everything he does is just what the Father desires. Uh, he says in this passage I read to you, uh, when he, the disciples said, does he have food? Did someone give him food? He, he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And of course, that's exactly what he's been doing 
on this occasion. So his whole life is a series of divine appointments. Jesus never has any chance encounters with anybody. Uh, neither, by the way, do you. Uh, your life is a series of divine appointments as well. Uh, God has his hand over your life uh, and over mine uh, every day. Uh, we go where we do. We meet who we meet because the Father has purposes for us and he calls us to serve him so that our food, just like Jesus, is to do the will of our Father in every conversation, in every encounter we ever have. Now, I've got a map here showing uh, where Jacob's well is. Uh, you see it there in the middle of your map uh, up in front of you. There's Judea down to the south. Uh, the text says at the beginning of the chapter, that's where Jesus started from, down in Judea. He's going up to Galilee in the north. And there is Samaria, uh, Jacob's well, um, almost halfway uh, where Jesus stops uh, in the middle uh, of the day because he's hot and tired and thirsty. So uh, that's uh, where this encounter is taking place. Uh, the text begins with the words that Jesus had to go through Samaria. Now, why does Jesus have to go through Samaria? Well, just looking at that map I showed you, you might say, well, of course he has to because Samaria is between Judea and Galilee. Uh, so he has to go through. Well, it's not quite like that. Uh, the Jews in Jesus' day only went through Samaria if they were in a hurry, if they had urgent business. Uh, they hated the Samaritans so much. They desired to have no dealings with them, as the text itself says. Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. That's why the woman's surprised when Jesus speaks to her and asks her for a drink. How can you, a Jew, Ask me, a Samaritan, uh, for a drink. Uh, she knows this uh, very clearly. Uh, so, but the Jews only went through Samaria if they were in a tremendous hurry. Uh, usually, uh, they went by one of two other routes. Uh, they would either go uh, along the coast road uh, out to the west of Samaria, or they would go inland to the east of the Jordan River and take the road up along the river to get to Galilee. Uh, but Jesus is clearly not in a hurry. Uh, he's doing what the Father wants him, and he stays in this town for two days. He's not in a hurry at all. He's eager to meet this woman. That's why he has to go through Samaria. Uh, not because he's on quick business to get to Galilee. So here's a more detailed map. There we go. Uh, there you see Jacob's well in the middle in the little village of Sychar, just next to it. If you can see that. Uh, but usually the Jews would go out to the coast, Mediterranean coast, and go up the road there, up the, up the Jordan Valley in the middle, and they'd go to Galilee in the north. But Jesus is going right through the very center uh, of Samaria. The Jews even had a saying that if you uh, pass a Samaritan on the road, uh, your shadows should not touch each other uh, because a Samaritan shadow touching your shadow would pollute you, uh, would make you impure, unholy, unclean. Uh, so uh, they didn't want to go through Samaria because they'd have spent uh, every moment becoming unclean. Uh, that's how they thought uh, about themselves. That's how much they 
despise the Samaritans. So the third route uh, is the one Jesus takes right through the middle of Samaria. And Jesus, of course, has compelling reasons to go through Samaria. He wants to meet this woman uh, at the well. And so that's what he does. Here's another painting, early painting from 1300 or so. It's fascinating. All these paintings uh, set Jesus and the Samaritan woman in their culture, in their moment of history, wearing their clothes. And that's fine, of course, uh, because it, uh, they didn't think for a moment, these painters, that that's what it looked like. They understood that we are called to apply the gospel records to our own time and think about what it would mean for us if these things were to happen. So uh, you see Jesus in clothes from every period of all these pictures I'm going to show you and the people he's meeting. Now, who was this person, this woman that Jesus feels constrained to meet? Well, fundamentally, from the point of any typical Jewish rabbi or teacher of God's word in Jesus' day, this woman is an outcast uh, and Jesus shouldn't have been there. There is a series of problems here. The first is her race. Uh, from the perspective of the Jews, uh, this woman is from the wrong race. Uh, as they looked at the Samaritans, they thought of them as kind of half-breeds, uh, as racially impure. Uh, who were they? Well, if you know your Old Testament, you will know that uh, uh, after the time of Solomon... David's son, the kingdom of Israel divides in two. Uh, the kingdom of Judah in the south, uh, made up of the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, the kingdom of Israel in the north with its capital, Samaria, uh, with the ten tribes to the north. Uh, two nations all the way through most of Kings and Chronicles, if you know your Old Testament history. And the northern kingdom had turned away from God earlier and become completely idolatrous, uh, worshipping the gods of the nations around them. And they were taken into captivity by the Assyrians. Uh, the Assyrians uh, took the, the people of Israel and settled them in today's Iraq and Iran in the far east of their empire. And they brought other peoples to Israel, to Samaria, and settled them there. Of course, some of the Israelites stayed there. Uh, some returned from exile. And they intermarried the peoples that the Assyrians had settled there. So the Jews uh, looked at these people and they regarded them as half-breeds, as racially impure. Uh, basically, uh, they looked at these people uh, and said, uh, you know, they are racially impure. Many of them had intermarried. Just like Queen Esther uh, who marries when you read the book of Esther. She marries uh, the emperor, of course, uh, uh, out there. But, uh, but the Jews looked at them and said, they polluted the pure blood of the patriarchs. Uh, well, God doesn't care about such things. He's utterly uninterested in racial purity. Uh, he is constantly bringing people from other nations into the people of God and even into the line of Christ. Think of Ruth, who is a Moabitess, and there are several other examples of that. In fact, if you read the genealogy of Jesus, at the beginning of Matthew's Gospel, the, there are several women mentioned. Uh, and every one of those woman, women is not a Jew. 
their people from other nations who were incorporated into the people of God and become ancestors of Jesus. Uh, Ruth, uh, Rahab, uh, Tamar, uh, and uh, others. So God doesn't care about such things, uh, even though the Jews of Jesus, they did. And Jesus most certainly didn't care about them. So that was the first problem, her race, from a Jewish perspective. The second was her religion. Just as their race was mixed, the religion of the Samaritans was also mixed. Samaritan religion was a blend of the worship of the true God uh, and of the paganism of the peoples with whom they had intermarried. So their religion was an offense to the Jews uh, as well. Uh, the Samaritans had some of the Old Testament. Uh, they had just the books of Moses, the first five books of the Bible. But they didn't have uh, any other scriptures uh, apart from those. Uh, they didn't worship in Jerusalem, and of course Jesus talks with the woman about that. Uh, they built a temple on Mount Gerizim, which Jesus and the woman can see as they're talking to each other by the well there uh, in Sychar. Uh, the Samaritans thought that was the place where God should be worshipped, not Jerusalem. Uh, and the Jews were so furious about this that they fought a war against the Samaritans and destroyed that temple, uh, burnt it down. Uh, they were so angry. That's about 160 years before Jesus is meeting this woman that they had that war. So the Jews despised the Samaritans as heretics. Their theology they regarded as blasphemous and confused and their worship as improper. Indeed, for the Jews, they thought of Samaritan religion and worship as worse than paganism because it was a blend of the truth and falsehood. But rather like many Christians today as they think about the Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons uh, are more critical of them than of anybody else because there's a mixture of truth and falsehood. That was really how the Jews thought about the Samaritans. So that was the second problem. The third, of course, is the fact that she is a woman. Half of you are women. Uh, you wouldn't think of this as a problem. But in Jesus' day, Jewish teachers, Jewish rabbis, did not have women as disciples. Uh, because they regarded women as incapable of really learning uh, God's word. Uh, a woman was regarded as untrustworthy. She wasn't allowed to be a witness in a court of law uh, because her testimony wasn't trusted. Uh, the Pharisees had a prayer. Thank you, God, that I'm not a Gentile, but a Jew, not a slave, but free, not a woman, but a man. Uh, that's the prayer that Paul who was a Pharisee before his conversion, turns on its head when he becomes a Christian. In Christ there is no Jew or Greek, no slave or free, no male or female, but all are one in Christ. Obviously it's not a problem for Jesus that she is a woman. Uh, uh, he created women uh, in his image, uh, just as he created men. So Jesus constantly treats women as equals. Uh, his disciples didn't. Uh, they're surprised that Jesus is talking to a woman. Uh, they were chauvinists who 
took a while to get it into their thick skulls that uh, Jesus was delighted to have women as disciples, delighted to teach them. Uh, you can think of Mary uh, sitting at Jesus' feet and learning from him. So Jesus loved to honor women. The very first witnesses of Jesus' resurrection are women in a culture which didn't trust the testimony of women. They're the first who go and tell the disciples, the apostles, that Jesus has been risen from the dead. So Jesus is eager to meet this woman at the well. That's why he's gone there through the middle of Samaria. That's why he stops there in the middle of the day uh, to call her to faith and discipleship. So her race, her religion, her gender... Of course, the other problem is her sin. And in her case, her sin isn't respectable or secret. Not that there are any secret sins from God, and there certainly aren't any respectable sins. Uh, But this woman is regarded as a sinner by her whole community. Uh, This is almost certainly why she is at the well by herself in the middle of the day. Uh, Women would go to the well early in the morning when it was cool or in the evening after the heat of the day and they would go together. It was a community occasion. Uh, But she's there by herself in the middle of the day. She's an outcast even in her own community. Why? Well, she's been married five times and now uh, she's living with somebody outside of any marriage contract. Uh, So she is a person who is looked down on by everybody in her community. Uh, Divorce was easy for men in that cultural setting. So her sin. In that society, a woman was always viewed as the one at fault. Uh, She is now a woman who can be had without even marriage. So she's a danger to other women, despised by everybody. Uh, That's why she says about herself, he told me everything that I ever did. Of course, Jesus didn't tell her everything. uh, But in everybody else's eyes, the most important thing about her is her failure at marriage, her sexual sin. And that's how she starts thinking about herself. This is my whole life. This is my whole life. Here's another painting of Jesus and the woman. And uh, now if we... we, uh, Here is Jesus. This is how he's described in the passage, the gift of God, the one who gives living water, the prophet, one greater than the patriarch Jacob, the Messiah, the Christ, the one who will explain everything to us. I am he, the one who can tell us everything we ever did and the savior of the world. How does Jesus, how does the son of God, the Messiah, meet this woman? who had so many barriers between them. Well, first of all, Jesus sets aside custom and law. When Jesus asks the woman for a drink, he is breaking social custom. Uh, No Jew would ever have done anything like this, apart from Jesus. But Jesus is also breaking Jewish law. 
at the time the Jews had many laws which forbade any Jew to eat anything or drink anything that was Samaritan food or drink or that was even touched by a Samaritan. Uh, that's why the woman says to him, you have nothing to drink from. How can you ask me for a drink? She knows that he is going to have to drink from her water jar, the jar that she is going to pour water in. And that's why she says this. This is one of the rabbis taught that anybody who eats Samaritan food is like somebody who's eating pork. Uh, and you know Jews don't eat pork. So Jesus is breaking Jewish law when he asks the woman for a drink. And that's why she is so astonished. So no Jew has ever requested food or drink from her before. She is amazed at his request. Also, no Jew, of course, had ever addressed her as a social equal. Uh, and uh, his disciples are surprised he's talking to a woman. Again, uh, they weren't very good at treating women as equals either, but Jesus uh, most certainly was. A couple more paintings here. Didn't show up very well. It's rather bright there. This is Jesus first then. He breaks custom and he breaks law. The second, and this is the most beautiful aspect, I think, of this story, is as Jesus approaches her, he reveals his need to her. Uh, Jesus is the creator of the world. He's the creator of every drop of water on the face of this earth, every raindrop, every river, every spring, every lake, every ocean. Uh, and yet here he is, the creator of the universe, uh, asking this woman to give him a drink. In one sense, Jesus needs nothing from anybody, uh, but he delights, and you see this repeatedly in the Gospels, Jesus delights to reveal his need to especially people who are socially and morally outcast. Uh, in fact, you can say the more broken somebody's life is by sin, the more likely Jesus is to approach them by asking them to do something for him. It's a very beautiful, a beautiful thing. Jesus could not have done anything more honoring to her than to ask her to give him a drink. Thirdly, Jesus has this very lengthy discussion with this woman, a very respectful and thoughtful discussion. Here's a cultural setting where both among Samaritans and Jews, men treated women as intellectual inferiors with whom they would not discuss important ideas. But here's Jesus having this lengthy theological discussion with this woman. This is the first time any teacher, any teacher of God's word, has ever treated her in this way. What did they talk about? John's account is brief. Uh, one day we can talk to her. I have so many people I, I want to talk to. Uh, uh, I'm sure she remembers everything about their conversation together when we meet her in the kingdom. Uh, we can ask her to tell us about that day, everything that happened. What do they talk about? They talk about water and the well and living water. They talk about the patriarchs, especially the patriarch Jacob and also Joseph. Uh, Jacob had given the well 
to his descendants, and so they honored him uh, for that. They talked about the proper place for worship. Should it be in Jerusalem or should it be there uh, nearby on Mount Gerizim? Uh, and they talk about the nature of true worship. And here's a photograph of Mount Gerizim, which uh, just as Jesus and the woman would have seen it on that day as they were talking. Uh, you Samaritans think we should worship over there. Uh, the Jews in Jerusalem, uh, they were right, Jesus says. The Jews were right on that one. They also talked about the coming of the Messiah. Even though the Samaritans only had the first five books of the Bible, uh, they expected the Messiah to come. They called him the Taheb, the Restorer. And one of the verses in the books of Moses that they used was that beautiful passage in Deuteronomy 18, where Moses says, The Lord your God will raise up a great prophet like me from among you. And when he comes, you must listen to him. For the Samaritans, that was the primary text they knew about the coming of the Messiah. They thought of him as the prophet, the one who's going to teach us all things. That's exactly what the woman says. We know that when Messiah comes, he will teach us all things. She's referring to Deuteronomy chapter 17. The Samaritans also knew, though they didn't like it very much, that the Messiah uh, would come from the Jews. Uh, they knew this in the books of Moses as well. That's why Jesus says to her, salvation is from the Jews. Uh, she is familiar with Genesis 49 verse 10, uh, Jacob's promise to his son Judah that it would be from him the Messiah would come. The passage we all know about the Lion of Judah who would be the ruler of all the nations. So they actually knew that too. Uh, they knew he would be a great prophet. They knew he would come from the Jews. And so Jesus and the woman talk uh, about uh, those things uh, as well. Now, Jesus confesses on another occasion, no one can come to me except the Father draw him. Jesus, as he has this discussion with her, is aware of the testimony the Father already has in her life. Her knowledge of the books of Moses, her interest in worship, her spiritual need, her hope for the Messiah, her sense of shame about her sin, about her failed marriages, about her life. Jesus aware, is aware of all these things, that these are the points where the Father is already at work in her. So these are the things he discusses with her. So Jesus breaking law, Jesus revealing his need, asking her for water, Jesus having this lengthy, respectful, very thoughtful discussion with her. Fourthly, Jesus speaking to her with gentleness and grace about her sin. As I said, it weighed very heavily upon her. In her mind, this is my whole life. This is everything I ever did. Uh, for the first time, she's able to go back and talk to her neighbors about her life. Come and meet this man who told me all about myself, everything I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Uh, and of course, her testimony is so powerful when she goes back. Here's this woman whose life is covered in shame, uh, going back with joy after she has met Jesus 
to tell them all about him. Uh, Come and meet him. Could this be the Christ? And it says, many of them believed in Jesus because of her testimony. He told me all about my life. He told me everything I ever did. And of course, uh, this doesn't overwhelm her. Well, it it does overwhelm her, but it overwhelms her with grace. Uh, Jesus' words are not a rebuke. They're not a condemnation. Uh, They are spoken clearly with extraordinary grace. And she experiences his love and acceptance and forgiveness. And she puts her faith in him. It's her response when he says this uh, about his knowledge of her life that she uh, asks whether he can be the prophet and starts speaking about the Messiah. And uh, this is what leads her to her faith in him. And then, of course, Jesus commissions her for service. He sends her back to her community. Uh, She is the first witness to the gospel in the village of Sychar. Uh, Jesus loves to give us responsible tasks in his service. Uh, as the Father sent him, so he sends you. As the Father sent Jesus, so he sends this woman. He sends her back to the village. Go bring your husband. Of course, she doesn't have a husband, but she goes back and tells all her neighbors uh, and brings them to meet him. Uh, When Jesus says, do you not say there are yet four months to harvest? But uh, I tell you, I tell you, the fields are already white for harvest. What Jesus, what's Jesus talking about? What he's talking about is he can see the Samaritans coming across the fields towards him. The harvest is still months away, so the fields aren't white, but the Samaritans wore white clothes. And the woman's gone back to the village, and now the people are coming from the village to the well to meet him. They are anxious to meet Jesus, anxious to learn more about him in response to the woman's testimony. And Jesus says there to his disciples, others have done the hard work, you can enter the fruits of their labor. What he means is this, the woman and I have done the hard work. Well, of course, Jesus is the one who's done the hard work. He's broken down the barriers by talking to this woman and bringing her to faith. Now this is going to open up the whole community to hear the gospel. And so Jesus says to the disciples, I've done the hard work. You can enter into the fruits uh, of my labor. And they all spend two days in the community and they see uh, many, many people coming to faith. So this woman is a successful evangelist and it leads to these two days uh, in the village with many, many more coming to faith. And of course, this is in a stay in unclean territory all the time They're eating Samaritan food, uh, drinking Samaritan drink, uh, having contact with Samaritans and from the perspective of the Jews of their day, making themselves completely unclean. But uh, as I said, uh, this is one of the most successful times of mission recorded in any of the four Gospels. Uh, It's a very beautiful story. What can we learn from Jesus? Uh, Well, 
First of all, of course, we are called to live intentional lives just like him. Every day, Jesus was doing what the Father wanted him to do. That's what he's doing on this day as he meets this woman. He is doing the Father's work. That's his food. That's his life. That's your food, and that's your life as well. Uh, More than any meals you eat today or anything else, uh, your calling is to do the Father's work. That's what we hear in the world for. And to be a little more intentional about it. Jesus was intentional every moment. Uh, Most of our lives are lived rather haphazardly. Uh, We don't think, well, this is actually what the Father wants me to do, to have this conversation, to be with this person. Uh, But that's what he wants. Uh, We are in his hands, and we need to be intentional about it. Uh, Secondly, we see Jesus overcoming barriers. Just as in Jesus' day, there are lots of barriers in our society, all kinds of barriers. And Jesus asks them, us to set them all aside, to set aside social custom, to set aside all the Christian rules we have that keep us apart from people around us, especially apart from sinners, to set them all aside because they're not God's law and really give ourselves, as Jesus did, uh, to meeting people. Uh, Jesus calls us to be vulnerable. Uh, We've got to stop pretending as Christians that we've got everything together uh, and gladly receive the gifts of unbelievers, of sinners. That's what you see in Jesus' life on many occasions. Uh, That's our calling too, to recognize that there are many, many good gifts we can receive from unbelievers rather than pretending that they have nothing to give but only receive, and we have everything to give and nothing we can learn or receive from them. But to be vulnerable, we need to ask where the Father is at work in someone's life. Uh, Jesus building on what this woman knows, her knowledge of the books of Moses, her expectation of the Messiah, her desire to worship uh, the other things. Jesus calls us to respectful discussion with the people around us. It doesn't matter who they are, whether it's a Jehovah's Witness knocking on my door or somebody I get to meet at work or my next-door neighbors, to treat people with respect and with dignity. And Jesus calls us to gentleness and grace in our relationship with people, uh, even when we have to deal with the moral failures in their lives. Our calling is not to condemn unbelievers, no matter what the sins in their lives, but to take the grace of Christ to them. That's your calling. That's my calling. Let me give a very practical example. Uh, One of the women in one of my classes one day, uh, one Tuesday evening, said, "Uh, Today at work, I noticed that the woman at the next desk had a kind of soft porn novel uh, sitting on her desk. And I said to her, could you please put that away? I'm a Christian and it offends me. Uh, And I said to her, well, what was the result of your saying this? And she said, well, she was very angry. uh, But I've been a good testimony, a good witness, haven't I? And I said, well, actually, I'm not sure. Uh, Let's talk about this next Tuesday and you can tell me what the long-term effects are of this are. So the next Tuesday evening I asked her, 
uh, if she wouldn't mind telling us what had been the impact in her workplace of what she'd done. And she said, well, um, she, this woman I had spoken to, who I criticized for the book she was reading, uh, told everybody else in our workplace, and now nobody will talk to me. Uh, they avoid me when I go to get a cup of coffee from the coffee machine or to get a drink of water. Uh, and the next day she came to me and said, would you please take that Bible off your desk? It offends me. Uh, and I said, well, what do you think now about what you did? Do you think it was right? And she said, no, uh, no, I don't. I said, and she said, what am I going to do? And I said, you need to go to her and say, I'm sorry. I have no business judging you for what you're reading. That's not my calling as a Christian. Uh, please forgive me for being so self-righteous and so condemnatory. Uh, this wasn't appropriate. And that's what she did. And our calling is not to criticize the unbelievers around us. Our calling is to take to them the grace of Jesus. We are to see our own sins, not other people's. Uh, Jesus says, take the plank out of your own eye before you take the speck out of others. And Jesus' point is simply this, because his illustration is absurd. Uh, but he intends it to be. His point is, you are to see your sins very clearly. They're the sins you deal with. Uh, not other people's. Especially not the p sins of unbelievers. So we see our own sins. And then Jesus commissions us for service. Uh, that's your calling and my calling to be in the world as Jesus was in the world. And here's a final picture. Uh, this is uh, uh, from the Orthodox Church. And uh, do we know anything else about this woman? Well, the Orthodox Church uh, have stories of her proclaiming the gospel in Carthage, in North Africa, in Smyrna, uh, in Asia Minor, uh, and also uh, in Rome. And they say that she was martyred there. And she is remembered, her life celebrated in February and uh, after Easter. We don't know how much of that is true. One day we'll meet her and find out whether that's true or not. But this story, this history in John's Gospel is a wonderful history and a wonderful challenge uh, to us. Amen. Okay, any questions? I have no idea how much time we've got. I have no idea what time it is, but...